0: Well, it's good to be back with you this evening, and uh, if you hadn't noticed or hadn't heard my family in the back there, most of them in the back, uh, I'm sure you'll probably hear them at some point during the service. Um, my wife, Nicole, my eldest, Landon, is 12, just started junior high this year. My daughter, 8, or 10, I'm sorry, burying her face in her hands back there. Uh, then Dalton is, is 8, Owen is 6, and Darren is almost 5. Hi, buddy. All right. Okay, so, there they all are. I don't expect you to remember all the names. The easiest way to keep them straight is just to think L.A. Dodgers. Landon, Auburn, Dalton, Owen, Darren. But they're in similar straits to the Tigers. They're out of the playoffs, so I don't know why I brought that up. How many of you know someone who is totally incompetent? I'm talking about people who think they are good at something when they're really not. Maybe they're trying out for a choir and they can't hold a tune or, or perhaps they keep on telling jokes that aren't funny and nobody laughs but them and yet they think of themselves as funny people. These are, these are what we mean by incompetence and, and probably we can all think of somebody in, that fits into that category. Uh, perhaps it's uh, someone like the mother who called the Poison Control Center to report that her daughter had been eating ants not the relatives that are married to the uncles, but the little critters that make hills in the dirt. And maybe you have relatives that do that, too. But she was eating ants, and the mother got worried and called poison control. Do I need to take her to the emergency room? They said, no, 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 you're fine. She, she won't be uh, harmed in any way by the ants. The mother was very relieved. And she said, well, you know, I did feed her some ant poison just to make sure that the ants would be dead at which point they changed the story. Please bring your daughter into the emergency room right away. Okay, that'd be an example of someone who is incompetent or, or perhaps another example, a man by the name of MacArthur Wheeler. Back in 1995, he robbed a couple of uh, Pittsburgh area banks uh, in broad daylight, no visible attempt at disguising himself whatsoever. And so they put the videotape on the 11 o'clock news and within an hour he was arrested. And as the police officers are showing him the condemning footage, he just kept muttering to himself, but I was wearing the juice. I was wearing the juice. And somehow he had gotten the idea that if he rubbed lemon juice on his face, he would be unrecognizable to video cameras. This might seem a little odd to you, but to to psychologists, this is an interesting story. And so a couple of uh, psychologists at the University of Cornell decided to study this man and to study his case And they began to do a a further study on the topic of incompetence. And they came to the, the discovery after several tests that people who are incompetent in an area lack the ability to detect that they are incompetent in that area. So a person who really isn't funny might think himself funny continue to tell the joke over and over and over even though nobody ever laughs. Perhaps you know someone like that. I think my wife does. Um, now there are, thank you. Hey, see, I got a laugh. Here you go. All right. There are several examples in the scripture of people that are incompetent in one way or another. And such is the case of the group that we're going to look at this evening. If you have your Bibles, you can join with me in turning to Revelation chapter three, Revelation chapter three. And there is a, a church there in Asia among these seven that John was, told to write messages to of the seven churches in revelation two and three six of them are praised and commended for their works there was something about them that was praiseworthy and yet the seventh is never praised the first six had at least one redeeming quality about them but the seventh was only rebuked and so as we look at this seventh and final letter here in revelation chapter three and we look at the church of laodicea We notice a contrast between how they viewed themselves and how God viewed them. So as we read through verses 14 to 22, notice the contrast between how they viewed themselves and how Christ viewed them. He begins, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write the Amen. The faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to, to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As I mentioned this morning, the Bible has a lot to say about hypocrisy. And in our short time here this evening, I want to focus on this one small category of hypocrisy that I call incompetent hypocrisy. It's a very dangerous form of hypocrisy because the hypocrite doesn't realize he's a hypocrite. He keeps on going along with this mindset about himself that is so wrong, and he doesn't even realize how wrong he truly is. He believes everything he's doing is right between himself and God, and yet... There is nothing redeemable or praiseworthy in his life. This morning we sought to answer the question, how useful is your faith? This evening, I'd like us to consider the question, how useful are you? How useful are you? Christ in this letter warns uh, that that there is an absence of useful actions. There is an absence of useful actions. This morning we read Matthew 7. I'll read it one more time. Matthew 7:21 through 23. I believe it, it applies to both situations. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And then he will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, as we look at the different events and different things that they were doing, well, we wouldn't necessarily come to the conclusion that casting out demons and healing the sick would be lawlessness. But he begins clearly by identifying that this is not the will of his Father in heaven. They were not seeking to do the Father's will. This morning we, we studied a group of people who thought they, all they needed was to claim faith. They didn't have to do any works. Well, this, this church in uh, Laodicea, they were doing works, but they weren't useful at all. They were not according to the will of the Father. And just as Christ warned the people uh, listening to the Sermon on the Mount, he also warns this church of Laodicea, and by extension, all of the churches today, uh, whoever have ears to hear. These were incompetent hypocrites that did not have the relationship that they believed they had with the Father. So before anyone has a chance to ask, what gives Christ the right to assess this church? He starts off in verse 14 by naming himself, and he uses three descriptions. He says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, and again, um, if you're not familiar with this section, he's writing these seven letters to seven churches. John is uh, exiled on this island of Patmos. And, And as messengers are coming from these churches, he is giving them these letters that the that the Spirit has given to him, that Christ has dictated to him. And so the angel there, the, word, the Greek word angel or angelos, uh, just means messenger. And so he's writing to the messengers that come from these churches. And so to this messenger in Laodicea, he writes this, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this. He lays out his credentials, first of all, as the Amen. The amen, this is a, actually a Hebrew word that they just kind of carried over into Greek and we carry it over into English. It would be similar to uh, how we, we take the French word déjà vu. We don't translate it. We, we kind of know what it means, but we just use the French word. And so the Greeks would just use the Hebrew word and now we just use the Greek and Hebrew word amen. But it, it literally means truth or so be it. And it refers to something that is firm, fixed, and unchangeable. In a world that's plagued by shifting standards, it's reassuring for us to look to an ultimate standard of truth and recognize that he is fixed and unchanging. He also makes himself known as the faithful and true witness. And so he was able to accurately assess their spiritual condition even though they were deceived about it. And and oftentimes we can be deceived about our own spiritual condition and, and yet he is the faithful and true witness. He's referred to as the faithful witness in chapter 1. And when he comes on the horse in chapter 19, he is called the faithful and true. And so these are characteristics of him that go to his core, that he is faithful and he is true. And when he takes the stand to give testimony, it is unbiased and unprejudiced. And he tells us who we are and what we've done. He also calls himself the source or the beginning, the origin of the creation of God. And it's, uh, this word is, is translated multiple ways. It's translated as ruler in chapter 1, verse 5. Uh, we see it showing up in Ephesians when he's talking about angelic beings. And he talks about the rulers of the darkness of this world. So it has this idea of rule. It also has the idea of being a beginning, as in the first, or as the origin or the source. And so he's saying, I'm from the beginning, I'm the Alpha and Omega, I'm from the beginning. I was the originator of all things. And so I've had from the beginning till now to judge and see how people respond, how people act. And I have seen all of your works. So when I assess them, it's not just a little snippet here or a snippet there. It's not just a, a biased in person, uh, impression that I have. But I've truly seen all your works. The only antidote to incompetent hypocrisy is absolute truth. And the only way we can find absolute truth will not be within ourselves. It will be with Christ, who is the the ultimate standard of truth. He stands in contrast to hypocrisy. So we can't trust our own opinion of what truth is. We must look to an unchanging standard of truth. And so Christ identifies himself as that He is not only the amen or the truth. He is the one faithful and true witness. And he can be depended on. Now, what does he say about their works? Verse 15, I know your deeds. I know your works. They are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Or as the NIV translates it, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. This used to confuse me, this concept of hot and cold. Uh, I'd I'd heard many people tell me, you know, you need to be on fire for the Lord. You need to have this this hot zeal for God. Never once did I have anybody tell me that I needed to be cold for Christ. So it's difficult for me to try to figure out what does he mean by hot or cold? He says, I want you to be hot or I want you to be cold. Now, before we go any further, just out of curiosity, how many coffee drinkers do we have here? All right. Most everybody. The rest look like they should be coffee drinkers, right? Especially tonight, maybe. All right. Now, I I typically drink my coffee hot except during the summertime. And I've become accustomed this summer to iced coffee or frappuccinos. And so there are times when I like my coffee hot and there are times when I like my coffee cold. And both have their own distinct uses. But something I've found is that if you leave hot coffee out long enough, it turns warm. And if you leave leave cold coffee out long enough, it too becomes warm. It it kind of blends in with the surroundings. And and what Christ is doing here for this church in Laodicea is he's bringing up in, in their minds an illustration that they could resonate with. Because the, the, uh, the city of Laodicea did not have its own water source. They had to get water from other cities. And so one of the sources was up in Corinth. And Corinth had a cool water supply, which would be wonderful for drinking. But by the time it came through the aqueduct to Laodicea, it was stagnant and warm. There was another place, Hierapolis, that wasn't too far away. And they had hot springs, which were wonderful for medicinal value. But by the time, again, that it got to Laodicea, it also was warm. It didn't serve the function that it was originally intended. The cold water was no longer cold. The, the hot water was no longer hot. And so it, it didn't serve any function. It was rather disgusting. And so he's looking at their works and he says, your works are, are, are such as this. They're neither hot nor cold. They're not useful at all. Your works are useless, just like the faith that we talked about earlier this morning, the faith that doesn't have works is useless. Well, he's saying your works are useless. They're neither hot nor cold. And because of that, I will spit them out of my mouth or I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, he's not saying that he is doing it right now, but it, it, he's giving the indication that he's about to. He's on the verge and we're going to get that sense of, of of nearness of a decision later on in the text as well. One commentator wrote it this way, Some churches make the Lord weep. Others make Him angry. The Laodicean church made Him sick because none of their works were useful. Rather than keeping a passion burning for Christ, they had adapted to their surroundings and had become complacent and useless. And how how easy that is for us to do as well. How easy it is for us just to fit in with our surroundings and and allow the culture to change us and to, to push us in a direction that we wouldn't necessarily want to go in. And rather than keep our zeal for Christ, we just take a back seat. We just let the world kind of wash over us. Christ says that is useless. It makes us useless to make peace with the world and ignore Christ. We must not compromise this will of God to accommodate our lifestyle or to seek to make friends in the world. Well, not only is there an absence of useful actions, but there's also an absence of proper values. There's an absence of proper values. Notice in verse 17 and 18, he says, Because you say, I am rich, and I have become wealthy and have need of nothing. That's their assessment. Here's God's assessment. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now, this stands as somewhat of a contrast. There was another church he wrote to called Smyrna, and they were financially poor, and yet he says, spiritually, you're rich. The flip side is, is Laodicea. They were materially wealthy, and yet he says, you're actually bankrupt, you don't have anything of value. And so another part of this incompetent hypocrisy is their failure to recognize their real condition. They thought they were rich. They thought they were healthy. They thought they were independent. And they had reason to believe this. Laodicea was right in the middle of two different types of trade routes. Two main roads came through the city, and so they had lots of commerce. Because of that, they had set up a big big bank. And so their, their banking was second to none. It was well-known throughout the Greco-Roman Empire. And so if people wanted a a good bank, they went to Laodicea. They had lots of money. They also had a a special kind of wool that was very soft, and it was dark. It was a black wool. And they they were very famous for this. And so they would make clothing with this black wool, and it was very popular, and they would sell it around, and as the traders would come through, they would do good business. They also had a, a uh, spiritual culture of the, of this um god of the valley religion, and they had they had this medicine that they had devised that was, was somewhat of an eye salve. and so they had not only commerce but they also had this this wool, these textiles and and, and then they also had this medicinal thing this uh this isap. and so they said, we're healthy, we're wealthy, we've got everything we need, we're all set. And Christ says, no, 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 you're, you're missing the whole point because what you have is worthless, it's useless. And in, in, in truth, you're not rich, you are poor. In truth, you're not healthy, you're very sick. In truth, you're not independent, you are very much dependent and you don't realize it. So from the physical standpoint, Laodicea was in wonderful condition and spiritually, they were bankrupt." They made the mistake of associating their physical prosperity with their spiritual condition. You might recall Job's friends did the same thing. When Job was healthy and had all of his possessions, they thought he was okay, but as soon as he started to lose them, well, there must be something wrong spiritually, Job. Otherwise, this wouldn't happen. And there are people in our day today that associate God's blessing with material wealth. I don't think Paul ever made that mistake. Right, Paul said, "I've learned to be content in whatever state I am. I've learned to be hungry. I've learned to suffer need." And many of the disciples were 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 very poor people, so it wasn't necessarily within God's plan for them to be rich in this life. In fact, true riches, He's telling them, is not found in physical wealth; it's found in spiritual wealth. And so He says to to them, "You are actually poor. You're blind. You're naked." And so I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. They thought they had all the money that they needed in their bank. They thought with all their business that certainly they were well off. And he says, you're poor. Real wealth would be as if you bought gold from me that's been tried in the fire. Now, he just told them they're broke. How how does he expect them to buy anything if they're broke, right? Uh, Isaiah 55 has a similar passage where he says, uh, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Basically, they're, they're saying, you're dependent. You have to come as a beggar and request of this. And so, even though the church at Laodicea, Laodicea thought they were independent, God is showing them, no, 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 you're very much dependent. And you need to recognize that you are dependent on me. You're dependent on me for what is truly of value this gold that has been tried in the fire. It was free from impurities. It represents the priceless riches of true salvation. Christ is not saying they could buy it because certainly they were poor in spiritual sense. He's telling them that they need to come and beg for this. They need to repent, as he says later. And so Christ offered the Laodiceans a pure, true salvation that would bring them into a true relationship with him. Second, he advised them to buy white garments. Remember, they had the black wool, very popular. And so most of the city would have been wearing black wool. So this would stand out as a contrast that they were supposed to wear white robes. And perhaps we might think of of the robes that the priests would have worn. However, in in the, the end times, this represents, this white garment represents purity of faith and righteousness And a white robe was something that they could not earn on their own. It was given to them on the basis of Christ's righteousness. And he said, you don't need your wool. What you need is righteousness. You need need the thing that symbolizes righteous deeds that always accompany genuine saving faith. Your black wool will not help you in the last days. Finally, Christ offered them eye-stab to anoint their eyes so that they could see. And again, they had they had their own eye salve. And so they perhaps may have been confused and thought, it, what's so much better about his eye salve that he's offering to us? But the significance of it is not in the medicinal value of it to a physical person, but that of spiritual blindness that they possessed. You might recall when Jesus healed the blind, the one blind man and he does it in stages. You know, he, he spits on the ground and puts the clay in the man's eyes and when he... He pulls it off. He says, what do you see? And the man who had been totally blind before says, I see men walking around like trees. And Jesus does another act, and then he can see clearly. And he does this to demonstrate to the disciples that they didn't fully understand his mission. Peter had just said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And and Jesus says, I must die. And Peter says, no way, that's never going to happen. And Jesus says, you're spiritually blind, Peter. You only have in your mind the things of men. You need to have in mind the things of God. You're spiritually blind and you need to be totally healed of that. Christ is saying the same thing to the church at Laodicea. Physically, they weren't blind, but spiritually, they were totally blind. They were incompetent. They they could not see how blind they truly were. They couldn't see how bad a circumstance they were in. And so he said, you need to be healed of this spiritual blindness. You need to come and beg of me that I'll give you spiritual eyesight. Well, there's not only an absence of useful actions and an absence of proper values, there's also an absence of a zealous fellowship. Notice with me verses 19 and 20. He says, Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. They didn't have a fellowship with God, a true fellowship with him, because they probably were not even believers. They didn't already have their white robes of righteousness. They did not already have their gold tried in the fire. And he says to them, those whom I love I reprove and discipline. This is, the, this is what I do to those whom I love. And I'm not doing that to you right now. So therefore, be zealous and repent. You need to repent. You need to come to me because we do not have a right relationship at this point, and I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. He also mentions standing at the door and knocking. And some have interpreted this to be uh, an invitation to them to open the door of their heart and allow him to come in and, and save them. But remember, he's not writing this to an individual, he's writing this to a church. It's not the door of a person's heart, but the door of the church. He's saying, you've left me out. You don't recognize that I'm not even a part of your assembly. And so I'm knocking at the door so that you'll let me into your assembly, into the church. And I will dine with you and you will dine with me. And this, this word dine speaks of the evening meal. Perhaps Jesus is saying it's coming close to the time of judgment. The end is near. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. I'm about to stop knocking at the door and we are about to close up your church and remove your candlestick. Jesus hasn't just started knocking. He's been knocking for a while. This is a continual knocking here. It's not just tapping a few times and then walking away. He is long-suffering and patient showing grace to them. He desires to fellowship with those in the church, but they were not fervently or zealously seeking Him the way He was seeking them. The question that, that we should ask ourselves is, how zealous is our church? How how much are we seeking after God and seeking after a relationship with Him? And I'm not trying to suggest that, that your church is the church of Laodicea, But certainly in these times, any church is capable of getting to that level. It wasn't that the church at Laodicea started out in this way. They had just over time gradually become more and more and more like the world and lost the zeal that they once had for God. Well, it's your job as a member of this church to zealously repent when you've sinned. It's your job as a member of this church to encourage your brothers and sisters to repent when they've sinned. And when you see a fellow member slipping into the lukewarm temperature of the world, you must encourage them to be zealous about their relationship with the Lord. Otherwise, over time, everybody's going to become complacent. And we will fall into this trap. We must be zealous in our repentance. We must be zealous in our relationship with the Lord. So that his, so this church does not follow the pattern given to us here in Revelation 3. Now, we've mentioned that Christ is is on the verge of shutting the door and and walking away. But He doesn't leave them completely. In fact, He does offer hope. At At the very end of this section, He says in verse 21, "...He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne." as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He offers to them this this gift of sitting on his throne as an overcomer. So so he's looking at the church, and as a whole, the church is pretty much almost lost. And he says, but if you overcome, I will give you this, this reward, that you will sit with me on my throne. What's he talking about? He's talking about His kingdom. You notice that He says that He is sitting on His Father's throne because He overcame. He's looking back to His overcoming at the cross and He says, the Father has Me in in His seat, in His throne. But if you overcome, when I come in My kingdom, you will reign with Me. This is something Paul has promised all along to the believers. If we suffer, we will also reign with Him, He says. And we have an opportunity as faithful servants of Christ not only to be with Him, but to reign with Him in His kingdom. And so he says, it's not just all doom and gloom and and I'm almost done with you. He says, you still have an opportunity to overcome. You still have the opportunity to zealously repent and seek after me. And if you do, if you overcome this lukewarm environment that you've you've become a part of, you can sit on my throne and rule with me. His final exhortation is, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Are we listening? Are we, are we actively engaged in hearing what God is trying to say here? Just as in the parable of the soils that we mentioned this morning, He said, it's all in how you hear. Are we listening with hearts that are tender and open to the to the Word of God? Or are we like the, the stony ground? Are we like the the hardened part of the side of the road or are we like the the, the ones in the, among the, uh, the thorns that get choked out? Have we become incompetent hypocrites because we are so enamored with this world that we don't recognize the future awesome glory that we can be a part of sitting on the throne of Christ, reigning with Him? Christ hasn't given up on Laodicea. He gives them this opportunity to repent, to seek His face, to have fellowship with Him, and to be overcomers that get to reign. Again, I commend to you to ask the question, how useful am I? How useful am I? Are my actions similar to that of the church at Laodicea, useless? Or are they useful? Am I doing the will of the Father? What about my perception of myself? Am I looking at me the way God looks at me or have I become you know, more enamored with the world and allow my uh, focus to drift away from the perfect standard, the one true and faithful witness? Do I have the fellowship, the proper fellowship, that He desires to have with me? Or am I content to sit inside while He knocks on the door asking to come in? These are issues that we should be wrestling with, we should be asking of ourselves, and we should be challenging one another with so that our church does not go the way of the church of Laodicea. We must be overcomers. We must be challenging one another. We must be praying for one another. We must be asking of Christ to give us that gold refined in the fire, to give us the white robe, to give us the eye salve to remove our spiritual blindness. And praying for that, not only for ourselves, for everyone in this community that we would not become like the church of Laodicea. We would become like the overcomers who get to reign with Christ. Let's pray. Father, this is a sobering reminder to us not only of the dangers that are so easy for us to to fall into, but the fact that we so easily can become blinded to the reality of our circumstances to the point where we don't even recognize how far we've gone. We do ask that you would help this church never to go that far. May you uh, work within the hearts and lives of these members to be zealous about their relationship with you, to be zealous about their relationship with each other, to encourage and uplift one another so that they do not fall into this, uh, this terrible demise. Help them to be overcomers, Help us all to zealously pursue your righteousness and to do your will, that our actions might be useful, that our assessments might be true, and that our relationship with you would be fruitful. For then we truly can be overcomers. Uh, overcomers, And more importantly, we, we can become pleasing in your sight. We can do what it is that you have for us to do, that at the last day you might say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. We do ask all these things in the name of Jesus who gives us the power and the grace to do these things. Amen.